I'm sure that you're going to be stunned to hear that just for a change today our text comes from the book of Ephesians, yes, chapter 4, verse 31. Please, could you turn there now? Now, we did refer to this section briefly in our last sermon, but I had a look at it in a bit more detail, and I do think it's worth going back to for a whole sermon. Because after all, the things that this verse speaks about are very everyday things. And there's a problem with everyday things, and that is that because they are so very ordinary and usual and expected and normal, we often don't think about those things and what we're doing or how that they fit with God. We are provoked towards godly thoughts more often by things like sunsets and beautiful flowers and majestic trees, but the fact of the matter is that God is found much, much closer than we think. In fact, right here with us, sharing every day in the very ordinary. And isn't that extraordinary? So let's read Ephesians 4.31 then. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamour and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Since it is a good while since we started chapter 4, for the sake of context, I'd like to remind you that back in verse 17 we started to talk about the need to vigorously cast off our dirty, sinful old man because we have a righteous and holy new man created in God to replace him with. So we can see that Paul is just extending that theme in what we've read here, showing what that casting off would look like for some very practical things. And we might have the idea that what is needed to show off that new man would be a righteous sort of bloke who only wears a sack and who's known for his wise and mystical behaviour. But what we really need to take to heart is that true holiness and righteousness starts right at the ground floor with how we behave around other people. And that's not just when we are guests. The other bit of context that we need to remember right here is that Paul is mostly talking to believers. So his concern is for our behaviour in everyday situations amongst the people who know us well not just those acquaintances around whom we're always going to be on our best behaviour, but family, wives, husbands, brothers and sisters, and not just brothers and sisters in the physical sense, but in the spiritual sense, in the spiritual family that we have in this great body of the church. And these are the folk who can smell the burning rubber on the road when we try to behave in a false way. And of course that's not to say that we shouldn't behave well when we're in the mayor's office, But that good behaviour shouldn't be like a suit that we put on for that special occasion. Then gets taken off and put away in a dark cupboard in between times. As Christians, one of the things we should be known for is consistency of character. Not one thing here in church and then another thing out there in the world. Now, I know that that's a constant struggle. Any one of my family can tell you that I am not Mr. Perfect, very far from it. Except, of course, when I'm driving, because I am, after all, the most perfect driver in the whole of New Zealand. Sorry, did I hear a year right there? (laughs) The truth is that none of us are going to be perfect at any of what I'm going to talk about today, or on any other Sunday, for that matter, within one second of making up our minds to stop some kind of sinful behaviour. But that's not an excuse, because we do know the goal. To be like Christ. We do have God's word and we do have the Holy Spirit to aid us and so we must stay on that path 
always striving to do better. Falling often maybe, but never giving up until we receive that prize of the upward call of God in Christ. Well, it's some time now since I've used science for a sermon illustration, but this process of continually trying to live a godly life makes me think of a laboratory technique known as chromatography. And some of you may well remember doing it in high school science or chemistry. Well, basically, it's a process where you can take a mixture of chemicals, they're all mixed up in a beaker, and then you can separate them by using a mobile and a stationary phase. Got that? It sounds a bit technical, doesn't it? Well, it's simple really, because that stationary phase is just the material that's used to catch the chemicals, and the mobile phase is a fluid, like water or some other solvent, that's used to carry the chemicals along inside the stationary phase. So here's a picture of the results of a demonstration of chromatography. And that's just been done using different coloured marker pens. And it's, it's very pretty, isn't it? And you can see how you started off with something that looks just black and by the end of the, the thing it's all spread out and we've got all the separated colours out that, that make that, that black pen up. And in this case, it's just a piece of filter paper that is the stationary phase and water is the mobile phase. As you can see, the way that it happens is made a little mark around the outside with the pen using a, a coin as a, a centre. Okay, then underneath you allow water to diffuse into the, the paper slowly. It has to be in a controlled way. It can't be too fast or too slow. And then you end up with this lovely pattern, just like a, a flower. Okay, so why do these patterns remind me of what Paul is talking about? It's a bit oblique perhaps. Let me try and explain. Okay? Chromatography is more than just a process to separate things that are mixed up so that we can look at them. It's also got a very useful ability to purify things too. And hopefully with that word purify you'll be starting to see the link. We could imagine a Christian perhaps a little bit like a coloured marker pen. And the colour comes from the stain of sin. If you Rub a Christian on life, they'll make a dirty mark that anyone can see. But hidden inside is the clean new man, the one that was put there by God. But it's all mixed up with the old man, the old habits and the temptations and the sin. And how would we perhaps separate those and purify them? Well, in John 7, Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit as streams of living water flowing from the heart. And also in Ephesians 5, we can read about how the church is sanctified and cleansed with the washing of water by the word. Okay, so we've got, we've got that water, we've got that mobile phase. So, there's our Christ's complete Christian chromatography kit. To be careful how I said that. The stationary phase, which is the new Christian, and the mobile phase, which is the water of the spirit and the word. Put them together... And then as the Spirit and the Word diffuse through the Christian, they wash and they separate and they purify. And we've got a word for that, haven't we? That, that work is what we know as sanctification, isn't it? So by the end of the process, when God's faithful work has been finished and the Christian stands before him in heaven, they will be completely pure and refined. And that's why I thought about chromatography. It's a little bit odd, but who knows? 
Maybe this is a world first in a sermon and you're the blessed ones right here to hear it. So we can understand what we're reading today is some direction for that refining process. And guess what? I'm going to plunge straight back into some science because really direction on on its own isn't that helpful because we are aiming to do some work, something real, the work of sanctification, cooperative work between us and God. Now in physics, a force is said to do work when it acts on a body and there is a displacement of the point of application in the direction of the force. Got that? Okay, excellent. Now that sounds like gobbledygook, so let's make it simple then. Take this here wooden block. I take the Mark 1 finger, okay, and I put it here, that's the point of application, and push it across the lectern. Okay, I displace it, in other words. Now I have officially done some work. I have, truthfully, it's very tiring. Now there's a little mathematical formula this, that for this it's useful to engineers and struggling high school students, and it's this one. Okay, work done equals force times the distance moved. It's actually a very simple formula. And we can use this sum too for understanding the work of sanctification. Okay, we do know the distance because we have the direction. The distance we have to work is from this very instant until the time of our death. What we don't know right now is the force that we will need. But we do know because Paul has helped us here. When we see this little word, all, near the beginning of verse 3, let all bitterness, wrath and anger and so on. And it's a word that we've encountered many times on this journey through Ephesians. And the Greek that it comes from really does mean all. All manner of, all means, always, thoroughly, whatsoever, whole. So that is how much force we must apply. All of our strength. We should be totally committed and engaged, running and straining together with the Holy Spirit to be like Christ. Now this tells us something, doesn't it? It tells us that the work isn't going to be easy. It will require us to try really hard, perhaps many, many times over before we succeed. But as we can see from our formula, there will be no movement if we don't put our hand to the plough, if we don't put our finger to the point of application to do that work, because the equation will never balance, it will never work. Friends, I want to encourage us all here because in a minute we're going to go on and talk about stuff that we shouldn't do again. And it can seem like every Sunday we receive another lecture on stuff that's just too hard, that we always fail in, and that we might end up feeling like we shouldn't bother in the first place. You know, I feel like that too sometimes. And I want to assure you that if it's no fun to hear, well, it's also not much fun to deliver, especially when you know like me, that I am no different to any one of you sitting out there. But this is what God's word says. So we must hear it and we must speak it if we claim to be his children. However, we ought not to be doing so under a heavy, black and oppressive weight of obligation or fear. Why? Because the Lord saved us out of love. We should serve him out of love. And this is why we persevere. This is why we strive not to impress, but to embrace 
And let's remember this as we go on to talk about some of the things that we strive over. So the verse vice that we are directed by Paul to lay aside is all bitterness. Now, bitterness is translated from the Greek word pikria, and it has as its root a word that means to cut or prick. So it's not a great leap to see where Paul is going with this. And although that it was first used for sharp things like arrows, it later became used to talk about sensations that were sharp or penetrating to the senses or painful to the feelings. And picria was used very literally to talk about plants that produced inedible or poisonous fruit. And I, I hope that's a description that every Christian would strongly wish to avoid for their character. In terms of emotion, Greeks understood this word as representing that long-standing resentment as the spirit that refuses to be reconciled. And although I'm talking about the Greeks, this is a disease that wasn't just found amongst them. It's always around, as long as there are humans. So today we are still found with this bad habit of nursing our wrath to keep it warm, and brooding over insults and injuries that we've received and going over and over bad experiences. And it makes us bitter, sharp and unpalatable. But in the end, it's just plain silliness. After all, who gets hurt the most when we allow sharp and bitter poisons to fester inside us? Is it us as the victim? Or is it the person who called the so-called, who caused the so-called offence in the first place? As we read this word bitterness in this verse, we must be honest with ourselves because we will all know something of this fretted and irritable state of mind that keeps us boiling inside, that inclines us to harsh and uncharitable opinions of other people and things. When people see it from outside, it makes us sour and frankly repulsive to those who see the scowl on our faces and hear our tongues that are filled with venom. Bitterness reflects a smoldering resentment, a brooding grudge-filled attitude, an unwillingness to forgive or a harsh feeling. And it's the opposite of sweetness and kindness. Bitter people harbor resentment and sometimes even keep score of wrongs. You know, I've actually worked with people who kept little notebooks about stuff that was done against them. Unbelievable. And they were not the kind of people that I enjoyed spending time with. And why have I gone on and on about this? Because this is emphatically not the spirit that we were called to. It's bad enough to behave like this amongst other believers, but how much worse is it when we do it out in the world? How is anyone going to take the message of the gospel seriously when those who claim its benefits are seen to draw blood as they pick and stab their way through life? You know, holding on to resentment is the exact and direct opposite of the blessing of forgiveness that we have received from God. And it's therefore the opposite of the message that we preach. We couldn't be more contrary if we tried, so how could anyone take anything that we say seriously? In his gracious kindness, God has forgiven us, and so we must forgive others. And that forgiveness isn't for our own sake, or even for the others' sakes, really, but it is for Jesus' sake, our Lord and our Saviour. Satan is very well aware of this, and so... He's going to use bitterness at every time that he can to poison us and to torture us. He whispers in our ear to remind us when we imagine that we have put those thoughts aside 
And he prompts us to misunderstand the things that others say and do to inflame our imaginations and fan that blaze of hurt. And this is why bitterness is so dangerous. Because there is nothing it doesn't damage. It will injure us, it will injure those around us and it will injure our witness for the gospel and it will injure the Holy Spirit. So lay it aside. The next strong emotion that we are warned against is wrath. And that might seem a little bit odd because if you're looking ahead, you will have noticed that the very next thing that's mentioned is anger. And on the face of it, the two seem to be the same. At least that's the way we would tend to read it these days. So why do we have them both here? Well, it seems like you know the, the Greeks separated different kinds of love. I hope you remember that. Well, they also did the same with anger. So... Wrath, as written here, has a very particular meaning. See, the word has the understanding of of some violent movement, particularly of the air, and it so speaks of an agitated and vehement anger that rushes along relentlessly. Wrath is a blaze of sudden anger which is quickly kindled and then just as quickly dies. And the Greeks actually likened it to a fire among straw which quickly blazes up and then just as quickly dies is gone. Now, understanding that, we now know that as long as we avoid any kind of violent anger, it's okay to be mad then, isn't it? No. Sorry. Because as I said, the very next vice is anger, which comes from the Greek orge. And this is a different and inner deep resentment that just seethes and smolders along. And in fact, it's a word that's used to describe how God feels um, his constant and controlled indignation towards sin. And as we read anger here, we should understand it in human terms as that long-lasting and slow-burning type which refuses to be pacified and just keeps nursing those hurts to keep it warm. And neither sort of anger, of course, is appropriate for a Christian. Okay? Hang on. Hold the phone. Haven't we just read in verse 26, Be angry and do not sin which almost seems to encourage anger. How does that work? Isn't that some sort of contradiction? How can I be allowed to be angry and then just a little bit later not be allowed to be angry? Well, I don't believe that there is a contradiction at all for three reasons. Firstly, although what we read in English in both verses is the word angry, so it looks the same, it isn't exactly the same word in Greek. They are related, but they are not the same and they do not mean the same. And when we covered this verse last year, we came to the understanding that what Paul was speaking about was righteous anger, like God has. And that's completely different to what we're talking about today. And lastly, be angry and do not sin can be understood in a complementary way to what we're reading now if we imagine a a conversation that goes something like this. Okay, you've gotten angry, but stop right there. Stop! You have the chance to not allow what's brewing inside to make a mess outside. Stop! It is after all part of the same larger instruction in this section around grieving the Holy Spirit. So I hope that that deals with any confusion in our minds about being angry and so it's safe to move on. Why is anger so dangerous? Well, it's because because apart from the obvious, which is that it's sin and offends God, which might be said to be at least moderately dangerous, it is because of the effects that it has both on the person who displays it 
and the person who sees it. Because anger is one of those emotions that never fails to leave a mark. Now, that's controllable if we allow time for the mark to heal. But if we pile anger on anger so that there is no chance for repair, then pretty soon we're going to have an ugly and gaping wound that won't close up. It won't be, it's going to be painful and it won't be pretty. If we allow ourselves to stay angry, it will increasingly become the way that we usually are. And that is not the right picture for a Christian. And anger has this awful habit of spreading. We've all seen films with a bar fight in them. And maybe some of us have even had a go. Not me. But mayhem begins with just one punch. A neck minute, the whole place is trashed, and there are fists flying everywhere. What do you think the Holy Spirit would love to see us spreading? Destruction and ugly words? Love, joy, peace and harmony. I think we all know which is the right one to pick. And since we're talking about bars, we might as well move on to the matter of clamour. What is a clamour? It is not someone who collects clams. A clamour is a giant and uncontrolled noise provoked by strong emotions. It shows a loss of self-control, the type of situation where people become insistent on making their point or demand things in a loud and unreasonable way. And isn't that exactly the opposite of what we're called to? In Second Peter we can read this, verse 5. But also for this very reason, and the reason that he's actually talking about, given, given earlier, is the very same in Ephesians, which is that we have a new, a new nature in Christ, for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue to virtue, knowledge to knowledge, self-control. And of course self-control is right there in that passage I keep going back to in Galatians 5 about the fruit of the Spirit. Why is self-control relevant? Well, let's, let's look to God for an answer. God is never out of control. Ever. He does not get excited because of some new sin that we have committed and wonder what to do about it. He never has to make a plan because someone had invented a new and bigger bomb. There is nothing in all of creation that he does not fully understand or have a plan for. And while we are neither omnipotent or omniscient, we do have a choice over how to behave. Will we be reactive and explosive or controlled and constructive. Self-control must be the standard we aspire to because chaotic behaviour and discord are the marks of Satan. And if we are in Christ, then we are no longer in that evil employment or image. Our Lord now has us firmly and unchangeably in His tender grasp. The Lord of chaos is defeated in us and so we must not continue in His practices. Amen? Amen. Okay, who knows about blasphemy here? No one. Oh, somebody does, that's good to know. It's the next vice we're going to talk about. And today blasphemy is almost always understood as evil speech about God. And it is. But the Greeks had a more general understanding about the word. They associated it with speech that seeks to wound somebody's reputation by telling lies about them, or perhaps even maliciously dobbing them in. They saw this as a serious social crime. 
And blasphemy represented the strongest kind of personal defamation. And that's the sense that Paul is speaking about here. And my translation uses the word evil speech. And others may use the word slander or similar, but it's all based on the Greek word blasphemy. So we know what it means. And we'd like to believe that this is something that we don't do because the idea is generally repulsive. However, slander has become a relatively normal social phenomenon, which is especially true in social media like Facebook and Twitter and so on. Those of us who are a bit older are perhaps not so aware of this, but if we have a chat to those who are of the younger persuasion, we'll quickly find that it's not uncommon to have your reputation trashed online. It seems that being out of reach of immediate retaliation has a seriously liberating effect on the fingers. Unfortunately, this can have tremendously damaging consequences, as we have seen more and more in our daily news. But us folk who are a bit older, we're not exempt, because we do like to gossip about about what's happening in other people's lives, whether we know it for a fact or not, and whether it's appropriate to share the knowledge that a friend of a friend of a friend told us or not. One commentary I saw had a name for this. They called this kind of gossiping passive slander, which is a good description. It's a massive problem in churches today. In fact, gossip might even be worse than slander because it's dishonest. You know, a slanderer is open. They actively want to attack and hurt somebody. So at least we know who they are and what their motive is. But gossipers, well, they don't care whether a person is hurt or not, just so long as they pass along that little delicious tidbit of information. And we could save a lot of heartaches and headaches by refusing to speak or to hear gossip. And once again, the problem with this kind of behaviour is that when we hold it up in comparison with the ways of God, we find it to be contrary. Because God is the truth. He is always truthful. And he establishes and defines what is true and what is not. If we're going to stand up and declare that we are for God and we take his ways, then it is completely inconsistent to continue in habits like slander and gossip that spread untruth, half-truths, or worst of all, deliberate lies. So what must we do with bitterness wrath, anger, clamour and evil speaking. Put them away. That's what we read here. And that doesn't mean hiding them in the cupboard to take out later and use again. It means permanently. The Greek word used used means to lift something up like the anchor of a ship so that the, the ship was now free to set sail. And it's used here to picture taking up and removing those evil works that we've been talking about along with malice. And for me, that's a wonderful picture of releasing and setting free. You know, imagine that ship at anchor. It's one of those, those graceful sailing ships. It's, it's designed and meant for movement, but there it is at anchor, anchor and it's, it's pulling at the anchor chain. You can see it wants to go. And then the sailors lift the anchor and that ship is free to sail to the horizon, to wherever it wants to go. If we want the freedom of that ship, here's what we must do with all that wrath and anger and clamour and evil speaking. Pull the plug on it. Lift up the anchor, let go, and let the waters of the Spirit sweep them away from us forever. 
You know, in the cold light of day, we can only ask, why? Why would we want to hang on to garbage like these things? Now, this might sound a bit like a summing up, but I can't let the matter of malice pass by with just a brief mention because its use here isn't without importance. Let's say that we were looking for just one word that would be a kind of collective noun for all kinds of evil behaviour. Well, it's this one actually, it's malice, because going back to the Greek yet again, it's translated from a word that's a kind of a catch-all for every kind of wicked behaviour. So what we've read today is like Paul giving an example of evil behaviour, and that's in the form of a sort of a chain, where things get worse and worse. First of all, we get that little burst of irritation. That's wrath. Then we dwell on the insult so that it settles in and we are permanently angry. Pretty soon after that, there's going to be some shouting, some clamour, and by that time, we don't really care what we say, providing that it hurts someone else. And so we get evil speech. Small stuff will soon become really serious stuff if we don't exercise self-control. That's the message. And that's not the mark of the new man, is it? So, put away all that malice stuff is really what Paul is saying here. If we're going to do that, how will we know what we should replace it with? Well, it's easy. We just go back to our best friend, Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I don't know how many times I've used this verse recently. But I tell you what, I'm going to use it in every sermon until we all know it by heart. Sometimes, like today, even twice. Now, here is my ruler. Okay? If I want to know how long the edge of this lectern is, I can use this for an exact answer. Okay? The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, is my ruler if I want to know what is right and pleasing behaviour before the Lord. If it's not like this, then it isn't. It's easy. If I leave this at home, then I can only guess about measurements, and that's not going to help me to get things through the door. If I leave Galatians 5 unlearned, then it's not going to help me to get through a much more important door. The matter of committing Scripture to heart is all of these things. It is vital, it is imperative, it is crucial, top of the list, overwhelmingly important, required, irreplaceable, often let undone, yet so greatly needed. Now, what does that spell down the left? Victorious. Do we want to be victorious? Is there anyone here who doesn't want to be victorious? Put up your hand so we can laugh at you. Let me be very clear here. If we aim to have any hope at all of putting aside all of the things that we've spoken about today, then having scripture committed to memory is central. Why do I say that? Well, what did our Lord Jesus do when he was tempted by Satan? Did he grit his teeth and pretend that Satan wasn't there? I'm not listening to you. Did he stick his fingers in his ears and go, No. He looked Satan in the eye and he said, It is written, 
Yes. Yes, that's what he said. It is written. Jesus was so accused and so he answered, it is written. So how could any one of us expect to have some better way of handling temptation than our Lord? It's just impossible. But it's also impossible that we will be able to say that it is written if we don't read it and read it and read it again until we remember it. Friends, I'm going to do a slightly scary thing here for me because I'm going to make a commitment here to you in public because I haven't been diligent in this. I haven't learned scripture. So I'm going to begin to change that. Starting this week, I'm going to be trying to learn one new scripture every week. And I challenge you to come up to me and ask me at any time what it is. I can tell you for free that the first what I'm starting with is Romans 8, 38 to 39. So, who will join me? Who will learn to say, it is written, and pull the plug on all malice? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we cannot begin to thank you enough for the instruction and example in your word. I pray that we would never take it lightly and allow it to just pass it by. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict us to set your word in our hearts and would also help us to set it in our hearts so that when we do face these times, when we are tempted to use ungodly behaviour, that your word would come to mind and defend us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.